0: I was reading an editorial this week by Kathleen Parker. She's a columnist for the Washington Post. And she cites several sources to prove at least prove as as she says it that nearly 66% of Americans under the age of 35 who profess to be evangelical Christians. Now these are not just the population at large, but under 35 who profess to be evangelical Christians, go to evangelical churches, nearly 66% believe that non-Christians can go to heaven. She also cites scientific studies that prove that it doesn't matter who you pray to because science shows that prayer of any kind produces the same beneficial response in the human brain. They've measured it. In other words, science is proving that all faiths lead to heaven and that even an overwhelming majority of evangelical young people believe that principle. Well, Jesus himself said... I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus said that. Apparently, we need to reinforce that truth in our evangelical churches. Even those who know the gospel of Jesus Christ are turning away from that gospel to embrace the idea that there are many paths. To God. The Bible calls this apostasy. And in Hebrews chapter 10, where we pick up in our study this morning, verses 26 to 31, the Bible warns us against falling into this kind of thinking. Why? Because first of all, apostasy nullifies grace. Verse 26, Hebrews chapter 10. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Now the book of Hebrews contains five warning passages and we've looked at three of these already in our study. We come to the fourth warning passage of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is warning people who have professed their faith in Christ not to turn away from that faith. Some people argue that these passages teach us that you can lose your salvation. I don't believe that that's what these passages teach, and I don't believe you can lose your salvation. These warnings are designed to cause people to evaluate whether they are truly saved or not. There are many people who profess to be Christians, who later turn away from Christianity, proving that they never really were Christians in the first place. And that's what these warning passages are talking about. I mean, just because you go to church doesn't mean you're a Christian. Lots of people go to church. Just because you're religious and you put on a good religious front does not mean that you are a Christian. Lots of religious people do that. The question is a matter of the heart. Does Christ truly have your heart or not? The tests come in life, and only then can we see if the faith is real. It's when it's tested by the stuff of this life that we find out whether that faith is real or not. Those who turn away from Christ under fire prove they never were changed by Christ in the first place. So the perseverance of the saints is the proof of genuine Christianity. The principle of Hebrews, and throughout the book of Hebrews we see this, and I want you to remember this principle as we continue our study. Continuance is the test of reality. That's how we know whether faith is real. It's not by our words, it's by continuance. What kind of person, then, is being warned here? Over the years, it's a a question many people have asked me. Is salvation no longer possible for me? Have I committed the unpardonable sin? I did some wrong things. So does that mean I can't be saved? That means I can't go to heaven? And they point to passages like the warning passages in Hebrews and others. So I don't want anyone here this morning to be confused about who is addressed in these warning passages. The warning is directed toward apostates, those who commit apostasy. It's not directed toward those who sin, we all sin. It's not even directed toward those who fall away from their faith for a while and then come back to the Lord. It is directed toward apostates, those who commit apostasy. So I guess we better start with what is apostasy, right? Let's start with a definition this morning. And there are two essential characteristics of apostasy in these verses. Characteristic number one. An apostate, one who commits apostasy, must know the truth about Jesus Christ. And second, an apostate must deliberately reject the truth about Jesus Christ. So apostasy is not about ignorance. There are many who do not know the truth about Jesus Christ, but they're not guilty of apostasy. Apostasy involves someone who has a full knowledge of the truth about Jesus Christ. And the Greek word that is used for knowledge in verse 26, there are a number of Greek words that can be translated knowledge. This particular Greek word refers to a full, complete knowledge of Jesus Christ. So the first characteristic, and by the way, you have to have both of these characteristics to commit apostasy. The first characteristic of apostasy is that a person has a full and complete knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And then, secondly, must deliberately and permanently reject that knowledge. This person intentionally or willfully goes on sinning even though he or she knows better. Now, here comes the question. In one sense, of course, all sin is intentional, is it not? I mean, we choose of our wills to sin. But the sinning that is in view here is a specific kind of sinning. In the Old Testament, and he's thinking back to the Old Testament example, in the Old Testament it was called sinning with a high hand, Numbers 15 30. And there was no sacrifice in the Old Testament for a person who sinned with the high hand. That is, defiantly, that is, intentionally and per- purposefully and permanently. Numbers 15.30 also says that another way of describing this sin of a high hand or with a high hand was to call it blasphemy. Numbers calls it blaspheming against God. So the person who sinned with a high hand was blaspheming God and God's grace. This was a a level of sin that goes way beyond our simply choosing to commit a sin, our decision to sin from which we can repent and come back to the grace of God and he forgives us this level of sin goes way beyond that simple choosing to commit a sin all of us choose to sin at times it certainly involves our wills but this kind of sin is a decision to blaspheme God got nothing more to do with Jesus Christ Apostasy involves someone who knows the truth about Jesus Christ and, secondly, chooses to reject that truth and to blaspheme God. Now, when those two things happen, he says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Verse 26. And the Greek word translated remains is a word that means to leave behind or to be reserved for future enactment. So apostasy means that there is no longer a sacrifice for sins available to that person because they have rejected it. The person knowingly and willfully rejected God's grace, so there remains no means of grace left to that person. If you reject the grace of God then obviously the grace is no longer yours. There's no sacrifice for sin that can pay for your sin. No grace remains. All that remains, he says in verse 27, is God's judgment. Put another way, if you reject Christ's sacrifice for your sins, then his sacrifice no longer remains as payment for your sins. It's simply a logical End result. Think of it this way. If I'm drowning in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and you are in the only boat, and you have the only life preserver, and you throw me that life preserver, and I say, I don't want it, I can make it on my own, and I push it away and reject it, then there remains no life preserver for me. Right? Same thing with salvation. If you reject the salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ in God's grace, then there remains no sacrifice for your sins. You've turned it away. There remains only God's judgment. That's the seriousness of this warning. Charles Jenkins had been a good soldier for nine years. He had a good conduct award. He had been promoted to sergeant. But on January 5, 1965, after ten days of planning and ten beers that night, he tied a white t-shirt to his rifle and he defected to the North Koreans. He disappeared into North Korea for nearly 40 years, until 2004, when he was able to leave North Korea to seek medical treatment in Japan. And in September of 2004, he turned himself into the U.S. military authorities. At his court-martial, the frail, tearful, 64-year-old soldier pleaded guilty to desertion. He told the judge, "'I am, in fact, guilty.'" He wept as he described his depression, fears of death, heavy drinking that led up to his desertion. He thought he'd be returned home, but instead he suffered under harsh conditions all of his life in North Korea. I knew 100% what I was doing, but I did not know the consequences, said Charles Jenkins. In fact, it was 20 years before anyone in America even knew he was alive. I knew 100% what I was doing, but I did not know the consequences. The Bible is a book of grace. It's God's grace through and through. But it's also a warning. And I don't want anyone here to ever say that you that Regarding your choice about Jesus Christ, that you didn't know the consequences of that choice. If you knowingly, intentionally, and permanently reject Jesus Christ, then everyone in the sound of my voice this morning knows the consequences. You cannot get to heaven. All that remains is God's judgment. Now that's not a popular topic. People don't like to hear that, and quite frankly, I don't like to preach it. But it's the truth. And It's the warning of God's Word. Secondly, apostasy slanders God. Verse 28. And of all the five warning passages here in Hebrews, this one is perhaps the harshest and the strongest. Look at verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, How much more severe or how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? All right, once again, he draws on the Old Testament for illustration. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses, and it was proven on the basis of two or three witnesses, because that's what was required in the Old Testament. Anyone who did that, and it was proven by two or three witnesses, the person died without mercy. The word for reject or set aside the law of Moses means to declare invalid or to nullify. This person didn't just disobey the law, Even as a willful choice. This person was declaring the law to be invalid. Nullifying it. This person declared God's law nothing. He refused to submit to God's word. That kind of person in the Old Testament dies as a result of his rebellion. Well, he says, if that was true in the Old Testament, then how much more severe will it be when a person actually comes to the knowledge of Jesus Christ himself and declares Jesus Christ and his sacrifice to be invalid and nothing and consciously and knowingly rejects it? There are three characteristics of the apostasy in verse 29. First, apostasy, he says, this person tramples underfoot the Son of God. What a graphic picture when you think about it. Here's Jesus Christ dying on the cross, and this kind of person actually tramples him underfoot. Now, people may not consciously think they're doing that, But when you reject Jesus Christ, that's what you're doing. You're essentially trampling him underfoot to stomp all over Christ, to treat him with disdain. That's the first characteristic of apostasy. Secondly, apostasy considers the blood of Christ to be common or ordinary. The word meant profane. Christ's blood is no more important to this person than a dog's blood. It's just blood. Nothing big. Nothing important. It's ordinary, common. That's the way apostasy thinks. Third, apostasy insults the spirit of grace. The Holy Spirit of God offers His grace to us, and we insult His grace when we slander Christ. Apostates blaspheme the Holy Spirit when they slander Jesus Christ. So You see, apostasy is much more than simply not getting around to believing. Apostasy knows who Jesus is and intentionally slanders or blasphemes him and what he has done for us. And such a person can't be saved because he rejects the salvation in Christ. That is very, very serious. Now, I need to stop for a moment and explain the little clause by which he was sanctified, which says in this verse, some think this proves that the person was a Christian because he was sanctified by the blood of Christ and now he has lost his salvation. But the word sanctified is not always a word that refers to someone coming to genuine salvation. It literally means that a person was set apart in some way to benefit from God's grace, but that doesn't mean the person is saved. For example, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. We can see clearly in this passage in 1 Corinthians 7, which is, by the way, a passage talking about a Christian who is married to a non-Christian, and a Christian who is married to a non-Christian should not seek divorce. Don't do it, Paul says. Remain married. Why? Why? Because by remaining married, the Christian spouse sanctifies the non-Christian spouse and the children. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Well, that doesn't mean that the other person is saved or is going to heaven, because that's a choice each person must make for themselves. What it means is that the believing spouse sets apart this home and this person as a recipient of God's grace through their lives and through their witness. And those children and that unbelieving spouse receive that message of God's grace because the believer is there. It sets them apart as a recipient of God's grace. So stay there, Paul says. For you have a sanctifying effect. So it doesn't mean that the person is saved. It means that you have set them apart as a receiver of God's grace because of your presence in the home. Because the Christian is there. The home is sanctified. So... These are, again, not people who were genuine believers who then lost their salvation. They are people who knew all there was to know about Jesus Christ and deliberately and intentionally and permanently chose to blaspheme that message. And they trample underfoot the Son of God and they treat as common the blood of Christ and they insult the Spirit of grace. So apostates are people who know who Christ is and yet still become enemies of Christ. Sadly, history is full of people. In fact, many of the most vehement atheists are people who grew up in churches, in Christian churches, and turned away from the message of Christianity. According to a report on National Public Radio last month, atheists marked Blasphemy Day. Did you know there was a Blasphemy Day? There is. They marked Blasphemy Day at gatherings around the world. They celebrated the freedom to insult Christianity. Really all religion, but particularly Christianity comes in for special insults. Some offered to trade pornography for Bibles. Others de-baptized people with their hair dryers. I don't know what that does, but... And in Washington, D.C., an art exhibit opened that shows, among other paintings, one entitled Divine Wine, where Jesus on the cross has blood flowing from his wounds into a wine bottle. Another, Jesus paints his nails, shows an effeminate Jesus after the crucifixion, applying polish to the nails that attach his hands to the cross. Even some atheists are appalled at the new atheism, that ridicules Christianity. But new atheists like Oxford biologist Richard Dawkins and journalist Christopher Hitchens are selling millions of books and drawing people by the thousands to their call for an uncompromising, militant atheism today. For example, Christopher Hitchens, columnist for Vanity Fair and the author of the book God is Not Great, told a capacity crowd at the University of Toronto, I think religion should be treated with ridicule, hatred, and contempt, and I claim that right. This in the day of tolerance, of course. Can you imagine if a Christian said, I claim the right to hate non-Christians? My goodness. Well, that's what he said. His words were greeted with hoots of approval and applause. Religion is sinister, dangerous, and ridiculous, Christopher Hitchens tells National Public Radio, because it can prompt people to fly airplanes into buildings. It promotes ignorance. The more outrageous the message, the better, says P.Z. Myers, who writes an influential blog that calls, among other things, for the end of all religion. On blasphemy day, Myers drove a rusty nail through a consecrated communion wafer and posted a photo on his website. People got very angry, he recalls. I don't know why. I mean, it's just a cracker, right? Ridicule of Christianity. In this day of tolerance for everything else, what causes people to be so mean and hateful toward Christianity? Well, it is slander, It is blasphemy. That's what they're celebrating is blasphemy day. And it comes from the master of blasphemy. It comes from the master of slander, Satan himself. That's where it comes from. These people have sold their souls to the devil. Apostasy nullifies grace. And apostasy slanders God... And therefore, apostasy deserves judgment, the author of Hebrews argues. Verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. So, make no mistake about it, God will judge apostasy one day. Someday that day of judgment is coming. People may seem to get away with slandering Jesus now, but one day they will face God and God will judge them for their apostasy, their blasphemy. Now, what we need to remember is this important principle. It is not our job to judge the blasphemers. Did you realize what he's saying here? Vengeance is mine. Who's speaking? God. Vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay. It's not your job. It's not mine. To run around and repay all the blasphemers in this world. That's a very important principle. Vengeance is God's, not ours to perform. He will pay back it all back in due time. That's his job. As Christians... Please, don't take vengeance into your own hands. That is his prerogative. It is not ours. And that's what he's saying here. As Christians, you see this happening. Leave it with God. God can handle it. It's been going on for since Adam and Eve. I think God can handle it. Leave it to him. It's not our job. We go on living God's grace in this world. That's our job. Jesus told a parable about a great dragnet in Matthew 13. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a big net that goes down to the bottom of the ocean and draws up the fish of the sea at the end of the age. Then and only then, he says, are the good fish divided from the bad fish. And the good fish go to heaven and the bad fish go to hell. But God does that, not us. And he does it at the end of the age. In fact, just a few parables before that parable in Matthew 13, because Matthew 13 is a whole string of parables about the nature of the kingdom of heaven. Just a few parables before that, Jesus told another parable, and it was a parable about the wheat field, where there are weeds and there's wheat. In that field. And he said, The kingdom of heaven is like a field full of of wheats and weeds. Don't go into the field, he says to the disciples, and try to pull up the weeds, because you might damage the wheat. Allow both the weeds and the wheat to grow together, and at the end of the age, God will gather up both. Folks, in churches all over this globe, there's weeds and there's wheat. I hope everyone here this morning is wheat. But I don't know that that's necessarily true. In every single church, there are weeds and wheat. It's not our job to run around pulling up all the weeds. That's his job. Allow both the weeds and the wheat to grow together. At the end of the age, God will gather a growth. He'll destroy the weeds. He'll save the wheat. So be careful about trying to become the judge and jury of spiritual life because we don't see the heart and God does only God knows the heart so leave it to God to judge in his perfect time you know sometimes you look at what somebody is doing and how they have turned away and you say that person must be an apostate well we don't know that because I don't know his heart I only know what he's saying or she's saying and doing and we reject that of course but we don't know the heart, so we leave it to God to ultimately judge. Whether that person will be drawn back to his grace or turn away permanently. But that's all in God's hands, and he will judge. And he will judge, and that's the warning. That day is coming. In April of 2008, Kevin Miller uh, Christian businessman had to drive to Fort Wayne, Indiana for some work, so he went to Enterprise and he rented a car. Now, he was, Kevin was not used to uh, paying for tolls because he had one of those eye passes you know, and you just drive through and they credit your account. So, the first toll booth he came to in the rental car, he just buzzed on through. And then he thought, oh, this car doesn't have an I-pass. Well, That's okay, the car belongs to the rental car company and probably they include that in their price. That's probably what we pay for when we do all this. So he wasn't going to worry about it. When he got on I-294, he drove past another toll thinking, well, even if I'm responsible for the tolls, there's only a few tolls between here and Indiana, maybe $4 worth of tolls, and they're not going to send me a bill for $4 because that's not worth it. So nothing's going to happen. Well, after he returned home from his business trip, months went by and nothing did happen. Until October, when he received a piece of mail that read, Notice of Toll Violations. The tollway authority wouldn't bother sending him a bill for his measly $3.90 in tolls, that was true. But when you added in $20 fine for every one of the five toll booths he drove past. They did bother sending him a bill for $103.90. He writes these words I about had a heart attack. They had me dead to rights. They had a photo of my rental car's license plate. They even knew the exact lane I was in. The fact that months had gone by and nothing had happened didn't mean that nothing was ever going to happen. In a passage, he said, concerning the return of Christ, Peter says, get a clue, people. Just because the Lord hasn't come back yet, don't think for a minute that he won't. The Lord isn't being slow about his promises, some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Just because God hasn't judged yet, doesn't mean he won't. The Lord is coming back, is he not? Judgment is coming. Beware. Look at verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's a powerful verse. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, fear of God's judgment warns us not to turn away from God's grace. He's offered His grace. And the warning is, be aware of His judgment and don't turn away from that grace. Jesus is the only way to God. Sometimes sometimes we hear an atheist say something like this uh, or make grandiose claims. Of, you know, I've looked everywhere for God. I can't find God anywhere. I've... Challenged him to debate and God hasn't responded. I don't see God anywhere. I can't find him anywhere. Therefore, God does not exist. And we don't need to worry about his judgment. Well, I like the quote by Pastor Adrian Rogers who said in response to such thinking, an atheist can't find God for the same reason a thief can't find a policeman. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to find God. Someday, folks, every atheist will find God when they find God in judgment. That's serious. Fear of God's judgment warns us, don't turn away from God's grace. During his teenage years and early 20s, Peter Hitchens lost his faith. He rebelled against everything he had been brought up to believe in about Jesus Christ. Now he's written a book tracing his journey back to Christianity and the end of his very public feud with his famous atheist brother, Christopher Hitchens. Two brothers, two different paths. By the way, that's why we ought not to pull up the weeds in the wheat field. Because he's come back even if his brother has not. He describes how he turned to a life of rebellion against all authority. And at the ripe age of 15, he took his family Bible out and gathered a crowd and burned the Bible. He said it was, didn't work too well, it didn't burn very well, and it just made a charred mess. And by the time it finished, everybody had walked away anyway. But he thought it was a great statement at first. He turned to a life of immorality and rebellion, However, he began a slow return to faith when he was about 30 years of age. He began to go back to church. Christmas Eve celebrations, for one. And he began to read the writings of Christians. And he began to consider the inevitability of his own death. And that made him think, he said. He writes, No doubt I should be ashamed to confess that fear played a part in my return to religion. Specifically, a painting, Roger van der Weyden's 15th century Last Judgment, which I saw in Burgundy while on holiday. I had scoffed at its mention in the guidebook, but now I gaped, my mouth actually hanging open at the naked figures fleeing towards the pit of hell. These people did not appear remote or from some ancient past. They were my own generation. They were me and people I knew. My large catalog of misdeeds replayed themselves rapidly in my head. I had absolutely no doubt that I was among the damned, if there were any damned. His Marxist-Atheist girlfriend was also turning to Christianity. And eventually they decided to get married in a church, no less, as an expression of their growing commitment not just to each other but to Christ and to have their daughter baptized in that church as well. His friends were horrified at his return to religion. And for many years he said he didn't speak about it publicly for fear of the ridicule. But the growing fury of the anti-Christian writers eventually drove him to respond to the attacks on Christianity. This, in turn, led him into a very public dispute with his very famous atheist brother, Christopher Hitchens, who was leading a hate-filled, passionate attack upon Christianity. He explains in his book, The Many Reasons Why Atheism Makes No Sense, in the end, and in April of 2008, the two brothers actually faced each other in a public debate before a large audience in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Two brothers now, one espousing Christianity, one an atheist. But he says this was a new turning point in his life. He writes, Somehow on that Thursday night in Grand Rapids, our old quarrels were, as far as I am concerned, finished for good. I have resolved that I will not hold any more such debates with him because of the danger that they might turn into gladiatorial combat in which nothing would be resolved and enmity would be created. I am 58. He is 60. We do not necessarily have time for another brother's war. two brothers two paths one path toward peace and heaven which is changing his attitude toward others and his relationships even with his own brother and one path toward hate and hell which path are you on God's coming judgment is real So let's warn others of that judgment. But let's do so in love, knowing the awful truth of hell and the wonderful reality of heaven. This isn't about extermination, this is about warning people not to turn away from God's grace. And it has eternal ramifications. So let's offer God's grace to all we meet because heaven comes only by God's grace. Father, it's so easy for this to become just a back burner topic. We don't like talking about these things which we'd much rather offer loving, graceful, kind, happy thoughts to everyone. But you know the truth, Father, and we know the truth. And there is coming judgment one day. And I don't want, we don't want, for anyone in this room to walk away spurning your grace and heading down the path that leads to your judgment. In Jesus' name, amen.